0: Today's reading comes from Galatians, chapter 6, verses 11 through 16. Please stand if you are able. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, Good morning, everybody. It is good to be with you and in God's Word together. We are going to be in Galatians chapter 6, verses 11 through 16. Uh, if you are using one of our Bibles that is in the pew, that is going to be on page 975, I believe. And uh, I, I would hope and do hope that you will follow along as we work through this passage and, and hear from the Lord what he has for us uh, from the text Uh, As you're turning there, uh, I want you to have a little bit of understanding as to the background of the book of Galatians. These particular verses that we're going to be looking at this morning, are coming at the end of the entire letter of Galatians. And if you want to know a little bit more about the details uh, of the letter itself, I encourage you to connect with our youth leaders or any of the people that are in youth group because we just spent a tremendous amount of time working through the book of Galatians and really mining the depths and hearing from the Lord um, what he has to teach us through this letter. Now, because you haven't been in youth group for that long, I want you guys to have a little bit of background. So the book of Galatians uh, is considered to be one of the earliest letters of Paul. And he sent the, the message to the churches in Galatia, which is in a region of the Roman Empire. Now, the reason that he sent this letter is because Paul was responsible for planting those churches uh, in Galatia when they were first getting started. If you look and read in the book of Acts, you'll notice that Paul has some missionary journeys, as we call them, throughout all different parts of the known world. And the churches in Galatia were some of the first churches to be planted. So he went, he preached the gospel of salvation through Christ alone, and people came to faith received the Holy Spirit, and churches were planted all over that region. Now, Paul, who really at his heart wanted to be a church planter, wanted to fulfill that role of apostle, moved on to declare the gospel in other places and let the church begin to grow and to begin to kind of establish itself in Galatia. Now, as that was happening, as Paul left And the church began to get established. There was another group that we just called the Judaizers. And these are men who claim to be Christians that hail from the places of Jerusalem and Israel. So, these men travel their way throughout the world and land in Galatia. And they go to the churches and they say, We are so grateful to be with you, brothers and sisters. Tell us what God is doing in your lives. And the people in the churches of Galatia say, well, Paul has told us about the gospel, and we are so grateful that we don't have to do anything except place our hope and our trust and our confidence in Christ and the cross, and we can be saved. And the Judaizers go, well, that's half true. You see, Paul, Paul got the, this part right about needing Jesus. We, we, too, believe that Jesus is the Messiah. But where Paul got it wrong, where you need to kind of doubt his authority and you need to kind of correct some of this doctrine that he taught you, is you're also going to need to keep the law of Moses. And they were primarily concerned with men in the congregation being circumcised. And they said, listen, if you want to be a part of, of God's people, if you want to be saved from your sin and walking with God, not only do you need Jesus, but you need to do works as well. You need to keep the law. And Paul heard about this through the grapevine, and he flips out. Galatians is by far the most intense letter that Paul has written. You can go to 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, and you can see Paul kind of irritated that the church isn't getting it, but he is especially furious with what is going on in the church at Galatia. And the reason that he is furious is because Paul knows that the weed, the invasive species that is self-righteousness and works righteousness will obliterate the work of the gospel in any person, and in any church. Now, this, this context for the book of Galatians is super, super important as we dive into this last portion of the letter. And in verse 11, if you look, you can see why. These por- this portion of Galatians begins with this, this sentence. It says, See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. Now, some scholars believe that the reason that Paul said, hey, pay attention to the fact that I'm writing with large letters is because Paul had bad eyesight or he was maybe hurt because of all the persecution and beatings. I think that the scholars who say this are right. I think what Paul is trying to do here is say, listen, I'm sending you a text message with all caps. You need to pay attention to what I am about to say. If you didn't listen to anything that I said throughout the letter so far, Pay attention. This is at the heart of what I want to communicate. Now, the the passion that I that I see in Paul uh, reminds me of a story. So, in two thousand and seventeen, Cheerios put together a campaign to bring the bees back, and they you know, went on to Twitter and they said, hey everybody, if you go and you buy some Cheerios, we are going to give you a packet of wildflowers. And we want you to take this packet and we want you to plant them in your yard and in your gardens and in your neighborhoods so that we can get the bees back. Now, I'm not an ecologist. I know that bees are important and I know very little as to why. But here's the fascinating thing that happened they sent out all these packets of wildflowers and farmers and avid gardeners and ecologists raised up red flags and said, do you guys have any idea about what is in those packets? Do not plant those in your gardens. Do not plant those in your neighborhoods. Those have invasive species that are known to affect negatively every single neighborhood in the United States. And so Cheerios in this kind of PR disaster, starts going, uh okay, okay, well, you know, do some research before you plant this. And all of these gardeners started to say this. Here's what Catherine Turner said, who's an ecologist out of Idaho. Many species can and have caused a great deal of damage when they are introduced into locations outside of their native range. Invasive species can outcompete the natives they encounter. They can take up all the space and use up all the resources. They can spread disease and even cause physical changes to their new homes, all of which can have detrimental effects, not just on native species, but on humans. She's not mincing words to Cheerios. She's saying, listen, what you gave people were invasive species, and what invasive species lead to is death, not just for your personal garden, but for the entire ecosystem that you introduce these things to. This is what Paul is getting at. This is what the book of Galatians is about, and especially this morning, what Paul wants us to understand is that the greatest danger to our church, to the church, and to you as a Christian, is the invasive seed of self-righteousness. Because what it does is it hijacks and it chokes out the gospel message And it removes the power of that gospel message from having any effect in our lives and in our church and in our neighborhood and in the world. And so what Paul is going to do as we dive into the text this morning is he's going to say that protection from this very real danger of the invasive seed of self-righteousness, it comes by two things. Turning from the deceitfulness of self-righteousness and firmly planting our identity in the cross of Christ. And so as we look at the God's word this morning in the book of Galatians, that is my hope, that is my prayer, that we would see clearly the deceitfulness of self-righteousness. And that we would firmly plant our identity in the cross of Christ. But before we dive in, let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father... Thank you for your word. Thank you that it is piercing and dividing the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. That, Lord, when you speak, we cannot hide. I pray, Lord, that you would reveal to us the wondrous things in your word this morning about the deceitfulness of self-righteousness and the glory of the cross, Lord, I pray that your word would do a mighty work this morning and that, Holy Spirit, you would be working in all of our hearts to implant the gospel deeper and deeper into the fabric of our identity in Christ. It's in his name that we thank you and pray. Amen. So Paul says that the protection that you can have from this very real danger of the invasive seed of self-righteousness is that we need to turn from the deceitfulness of self-righteousness and firmly plant our identity in the cross of Christ. And he does this in two stages. The first thing that he is going to do is he's going to help us identify what are the characteristics and nature of self-righteousness so that we can truly understand how deceptive it is and be able to perceive it in our own lives. Now, let me go ahead and take you to the text here. This is what Paul says in verses 12 and in verse 13. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. So the first thing that Paul wants us to do is he really wants us to understand what self-righteousness is and what are some of its primary characteristics. He's basically giving us a breakdown of this invasive species. So what is self-righteousness? So in the two verses that I just read, there are some words that help us understand what self-righteousness actually is. The first word that gives us a clue to this is in verse 12. And it's translated, want to make a good showing in the flesh. And the second word that gives us a clue as to what self-righteousness actually is, is in verse 13, where Paul says, they may boast in your flesh. Now, what we see from this particular kind of organization is that Paul is saying that self-righteousness, at its very core, is a type of performance. It's It's when somebody engages in activities in order to be seen, in order to perform like an actor, like a performer of music. Now, Jesus, in his interactions with the Pharisees, he addresses this same type of behavior, and the word that he uses to describe these people, the Pharisees are primarily the ones that we we see in the Gospels, he uses the word hypocrite. Now, the word hypocrite, actually means an actor on a stage. If you go back to the original Greek, what it was really associated with was people who would put on a mask in order to put on a show. And Paul is saying, listen, self-righteousness, I, the way that ESV translates is really great, is, is centered on making a good show, putting on a performance for somebody else, for yourself, for God, and that word boast could also be translated glory. So that the idea of self-righteousness is that as we put on a show for ourselves, for others, for God, we are hoping, longing to hear the applause. We want to derive glory. We want to derive value from the performance that we put on because of the approval that we experience. And that's what self-righteousness actually is. It's trusting in your performance to win approval with and to derive value from what you worship. Whoever the most important audience is in your life is going to give you a clear key to be able to identify the root of self-righteousness. Simply put, self-righteousness in religious terms is idolatry. It's performing... In order to win approval or favor with somebody, even yourself, and to derive value from what you worship. That's what Paul is saying. Now, our problem is that many of us don't see that we are in danger of this sin because we have a very specific view as to what self righteousness looks like, right? We go to the Gospels, we read about the Pharisees, and we go, I'm nothing like those guys. Those guys are ridiculous. They clearly are rejecting Jesus. I haven't rejected Jesus. Those guys are clearly, you know, nitpicking the law. I don't nitpick, so I clearly can't be, you know, guilty of self-righteousness. Or we, we go to, you know, the news, and we see other people who claim to be Christians holding signs that even we would say, That is really extreme. That is really, really aggressive and hateful. Those people are self-righteous. I'm nothing like those Christians. There's no way I'm guilty of that same sin. But here's the thing. Paul wants to get under our behavior. God's word wants to pierce to our hearts. So let me tell you a story about a time when I was self-righteous. And it's not going to sound anything like the Pharisees, and it's not going to sound anything like those hateful Christians. When I was in high school, I engaged a lot in the performing arts. I was involved in musical theater. I was involved in a choral program at the high school that I was a part of. And performance was really at the center of that. Now, my father is exceptionally skilled at singing to the point that he could have pursued opera and those opportunities were made available to him and he decided not to do that. So as I began to get involved in choral music, I looked at my dad and I said, this guy knows what's up. I should probably ask him for help. So one summer, in between my junior and my senior year, my dad and I would spend days, hours, months, working on my singing voice. He would give me things to sing, he would give me feedback. We worked so hard at all of these things. And I get into my senior year, and I'm given this opportunity to sing a solo in the song Moondance. Now, at this time, the song Moondance was made popular again by Michael Buble, and so everyone in my school was really excited about this song, and everybody was really excited to hear how this performance was going to go. And I worked my tail off getting that performance ready concert comes, I stand up to the mic, and you know what guys? I killed it. That solo was awesome. I knew it because everybody in the room exploded in applause. I knew it because when we took that song on competition I have a medal at my house that says first place soloist for jazz choir to prove that that solo was the best. But none of that mattered. All the praise of my peers all the medals that they could throw at me, it didn't matter. What mattered to me was that at the end of that concert, my dad walked up to me and looked me seriously in the eye and said, I'm proud of you, that was awesome. My entire world just melted and the only thing that I could see and hear and experience was that approval that I had won that sense of value that I had derived from that praise. That doesn't sound like self-righteousness, but it absolutely is. I was looking to the praise of my father. I was looking to my performance, literally, in order to win the approval of my dad, of my peers, of myself. And I was trying to derive my sense of value and worth from that. And Paul says, that is idolatry. That is the invasive species of self-righteousness. Now, what I love about this is that Paul doesn't just stop there, because in and of itself, that is a really helpful definition of self-righteousness. It kind of gets to the heart of what's going on. Paul dives deeper, and he points out two things about self-righteousness that are so, so helpful in understanding why it is so dangerous and how it is so invasive. He says two things about self-righteousness. One, self-righteousness is fueled by fear. You can see that in verse 12. It says, It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, notice this, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross. You see, the Judaizers, again, growing up in this Jewish context, they would have had deep ties to the things going on in Jerusalem. And for them to be Christians, to forsake the traditions of their fathers, and to put their hope and their trust in Jesus alone, made them not only hated, but completely ostracized from every sense of security that they grew up with. I don't think we understand the gravity that the first Christians really experienced when they said, I'm a Christian. And Paul says the only reason that they want to encourage you, Galatians, to be circumcised is so that they can avoid persecution. They were fearful of the rejection. They were fearful of the harm, maybe physical or financial but I think most of all, what they were fearful of is not receiving the praise that they longed for and hoped for from their Jewish brothers and sisters. You see, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, Paul says, the cross of Christ is a stumbling block to the Jews and it's folly to the Gentiles. The cross of Christ is not going to get you popularity. It's not going to lead people to praise you. It's not going to lead people to help you, you know, gather that sense of worth from them that you want. Now, the reason that that Paul says persecution is what comes is because the Jews experienced for a, a while there some political protection under the Roman Empire. You see, all other religions in Rome... If you failed to worship Caesar as Lord, you were destroyed. But for some reason, the Jews, being all politically savvy and whatnot that they were, had figured out a way by revolts and political clout to say, listen, that can be true of everybody else, but not us, Rome. You got to honor the traditions that we have established here at the temple. And you know what? Rome did. Until 8070. And then it was completely obliterated because of the judgment of God. But until that point, the Jews said, We're not being persecuted by Rome. We hate being under Rome, but I mean, when we look out and we see how other people are being persecuted, it's nothing like that. And the Judaizers knew that if they said the cross of Christ is the only thing that identifies us, they would have to come out from underneath that cross umbrella of Jewish protection. And so they sowed the seeds of self-righteousness into the church of Galatia so that not only they would be protected but that they would encourage that same type of fear in the church that they wanted to get praise from. But it's not just the Judaizers that sow these seeds of fear or experience the fruit of fear. When you and I Fear the opinions of others as we talk to them about our faith. Or we elevate our own opinion of ourselves, whether positively or negatively, over what God has said in his word about us. What you are doing, Paul is saying, is you're dumping fuel on the fire that is self-righteousness. And if you dump fuel on a fire, it's just going to get bigger. He also says that the the gospel, the false gospel of self-righteousness is not only fueled by fear, but it is rooted in pride. Look in verse 13. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. So again, I've already said that that word boast could also be translated glory. And here's here's the idea here. Paul is saying not only is your self-righteousness fueled by your fear of rejection and persecution, but it is also rooted in the fact that you long, I long, to have empirical evidence that I am worthwhile. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul lists off what he considers to be his religious pedigree. He says, I'm going to be able to point to some empirical evidence that proves I am worthwhile. I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Let me tell you what families I'm from. Listen, I studied at the best schools under the Pharisees. Listen, when it comes to zeal and righteousness under the law, nobody compared to Paul. And maybe that is where you're at. You associate your religious pedigree, the families that you're from and the faith that you have inherited and the, and, and the kind of culture that you are born into, and you think, that's where I get my value. That's where I get my sense of worth, is the association that I have with this empirical evidence of my goodness. Maybe it's not in church. As a matter of fact, I would actually venture to say that most of us because of the reformation would not be caught dead saying that we are going to find our hope and our trust in our self-righteousness as christians because heaven forbid we be associated with works righteousness in church let me show you how this plays itself out in the world so the royal society for public health which is an organization in the uk they did a study about social media here's what they discovered about social media The unrealistic expectations set by social media may leave young people with feelings of self-consciousness, low self-esteem, and the pursuit of perfectionism, which can manifest itself in anxiety disorders and depression. They concluded that the use of social media, particularly operating more than one social media account simultaneously, has also been shown to be linked with symptoms of mental health disorders. And then they ranked them. This was such a silly part of the, of the you know, report that they put out. They're like, listen, if you're on, if you're on Facebook, you're, the, you're on the third worst platform for this. Hey, listen, if you're on Snapchat, that is the second worst platform for this. And they were like, listen, if you're on Instagram, oh man, you might as well just diagnose yourself with depression and social anxiety because that is the number one place that you're going to find unrealistic expectations, feeling of self-consciousness, low self-esteem, and the pursuit of perfectionism. That's like like the conclusion of a government-funded study. And ultimately, what this study just points out is that the idol worship of self-righteousness is just a terrible god. Here's what Jeremiah uh, says in his book. Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places in the wilderness in an uninhabitable salt land. However, I would argue that the most insidious form of self-righteousness isn't in your career. It's not in your experience of social media. It's what one writer has called moralistic therapeutic deism. Let me say that again. Moralistic therapeutic deism is the ultimate form of self-righteousness because here is what it believes. It says God exists to make me feel great about myself and so the moment I feel sad or depressed or persecuted and ridiculed or not okay in my own self that must be a problem with God God is not looking out for me and any form of Christianity that takes this shape is the invasive species of self-righteousness. Exactly what Paul is writing about in the book of Galatians. Also in Jeremiah, the Lord sifts his people. He says, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love justice and righteousness in the earth for in these things i delight declares the lord that's from jeremiah 9. this week the lord used this text to sift me at a level that hasn't happened in a long time and it's my prayer that the lord would use this text to reveal to you where the weed and invasive species of self-righteousness lurks in your own life too or lurks in our church And the way that we address that is not by doubling down on a desire to perform, but by confessing it as sin. Because sin is not just our bad behavior, it is our idolatrous hearts that perform in order to win approval or to derive value from the audience. Tim Keller says this, Christians don't just confess sin. They confess our righteousness before God. That is so good. If we were to stop there, that would be pretty hopeless. And thankfully, we're only halfway through the passage. So Paul gives us great hope. Because it is by recognizing the deceitfulness of self-righteousness that we see how ugly it is, and we want to turn and see something beautiful. And here's what he does. He says, instead of boasting in and placing your confidence and self-righteousness in your performance, turn and glory in the cross. He says this in verses 14 and 15. But far be it from me to to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation." As we read that passage, it is actually really difficult for us to feel what is happening as Paul says those words. So you see, the cross to us is basically a fashion statement. We've got crosses on the top of this church. We've got crosses right above us here. We've got crosses possibly on our necklaces and on our Bibles and maybe on some, you know decals that you've put up in your living room or coffee nook. We've got crosses everywhere. In fact, since 315 AD, and Emperor Constantine making it kind of the logo of the Roman Empire, it's basically just been plastered on walls ever since. Here's the problem. The cross is a gruesome execution instrument. It would be like hanging like an electric chair above the pulpit. It would be like wearing the needles that they use for lethal injection around your neck. When Paul says, I glory in the cross of Christ, nobody in the Roman Empire was going, yeah, that's great doctrine. Oh, yeah, that's, that's, that's good. Like, how poetic. They were saying, oh, that's really disgusting. Don't, don't say that word. In fact, Cicero, in some of his writings, identifies that polite people didn't speak about the crosses of the Roman Empire. And that's because Rome had perfected the art of execution. Criminals, revolutionaries, they would line the streets on crosses so that Rome's enemies would recognize that if they stood up against the industrial complex that was the Roman Empire, they were going to pay for it. But Paul says, and Christ's disciples said, that the cross was the most glorious thing that they could look at. Because it is in the cross that the power of the gospel is powerfully displayed and made available to those who are being saved. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, Paul says this, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. But how is that, how is that possible? How is a grotesque image that Paul is boasting and how is that the power of God? And Paul identifies two things about the cross that we see in our passage. The first thing that he says is that the cross of Christ kills in such a way that it is glorious. And the cross of Christ resurrects in a way that is beautiful. Look in verse 14. Far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Paul says that the cross, it kills. Richard F. Lovelace, not to be confused with the poet in the 17th century, uh, helps us define this word, words, this phrase, the world, really, really well. He says that when we read this passage, we should understand that What is being crucified here is the system of our culture which seeks to destroy God's work by enslaving people and encouraging people to worship the idols of popular culture. He calls it corporate flesh. We don't even know how affected we are by the world and our corporate flesh because like a fish that's swimming in water, we engage in it so often and are surrounded by it so thoroughly that without spiritual eyes we will have no idea how pervasive this is. And Paul is saying through the cross that influence in our lives that not only our own sin nature not only the terrifying works of Satan but the world the, in, the most influential cultural encouragement of the flesh and in self-righteousness is killed at the cross here's why in Ephesians chapter 2 you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience the cross says that we in Christ have been crucified Actually, Paul says this exact phrasing if you just turn back in Galatians chapter 2 in verses, or verse 20 and, yeah, let's just say verse 20. It says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Paul says we can boast in the cross because that self righteous person and the world system that encourages that self righteousness was put on a cross and killed, brought to an end, buried in the ground. When things are dead, we move. There might be some intense things surrounding this thing's death, but then it's over. And Paul says that is what has happened to the world and himself. Do you see that? It says that the world was crucified to me and I to the world. The problem isn't that you need to feel better about yourself. The problem is is that you and I think too much about ourselves. We have been crucified to the world. You, in Christ, are dead. We talk about aspirations in our work. We talk about aspirations in our family. We talk about aspirations in our neighborhood or in how we feel about ourselves. And and God is saying, listen, all of you, all of you, has died if you're in Christ if you have put your hope and your trust in Christ, you're dead. It's no longer you who live. It is Christ who lives in you. And that's where the second half of what Paul points out is so wonderful. Because Christ came so that sinful people could die in him. And that a new creation could be resurrected by the Holy Spirit because of his historic resurrection. He says in verse 15, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Only a new creation counts for anything in God's kingdom. He's not going to look at your resume. He's not going to look at your performance as a parent. He's not going to look at your performance as a Christian. That person died. Instead, he looks at us in Christ as a new creation. Jew and Gentile alike, crucified with Christ and raised with him. Circumcision or uncircumcision in your performance, it doesn't matter. These words, they throw us into the future. And they say the glory that you will experience at the coming of Christ, the new creation that is waiting, as it says in the book of Romans, chapter 8, that the whole world is groaning for. That new heavens and new earth life is available to you right now by the power of the Holy Spirit. That through faith, you would begin to see yourself Not as defined by your performance, but by defined as a new creation that Christ is living in. Here's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. "'From now on, brothers and sisters, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation.' the old has passed away, behold, the new has come." And that is exactly why Paul can say, I glory only in the cross of Christ. I am not going to boast or care about my performance that I use to win the approval of others or myself or God. I'm not going to look to my performance to derive a sense of value at any level. Because I have died and now God sees me and by the Spirit and through faith I see myself, I see others as a new creation in Christ. And so as you feel the fear that fuels self-righteousness, when you begin to think, if I don't have this, whatever it is, if I don't have this promotion, if I don't receive these grades, if I don't have the approval of this person, if I don't, the list could go on and on. If I don't have, then I can't be. And this is where the glory of the cross says, you need nothing. In fact, that's not even the right question. Because that question and feeling is trying to elevate ourselves. And the cross is not ours, it's Christ's. Christ was the one who was lifted up so that all men would behold him. Christ was the one who was crucified for your sin. Christ didn't die because he needed to die for his sin. Christ wasn't self-righteous, he was and is righteous. And we are not. And it's only when we see the depth of that that we can begin to turn from the deceitfulness of self-righteousness and place our hope and our trust in the cross of Christ each and every day. It is my prayer that we would be a people that know in Christ how much we are loved and cared for by God it is my hope and my prayer that we would stop seeking the approval of others or ourselves or God by our performance and that we would experience the freedom of life in the Spirit. Because this is what Paul says at the end of our verses. Verse 16. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. To walk by the rule or walk by this rule is to say the gospel is everything about you. What you live, what you breathe, what you're obsessed with. And that those who, in Romans, this same phrase is translated, walk in the footsteps of faith. I love that phrase each and every moment by faith in the Son of God, we recognize that we are loved because Christ gave himself up for us so that in him we would be a new creation. It's that gospel hope deeply rooted in our hearts as individuals, and our hearts as a church, that will actually prepare us for the persecution that will come. The Apostle Peter in the sermon series that we're currently in is saying trials will come for being associated with Christ. And this type of hope, this type of rejection of self-righteousness and boasting in the cross is the only thing that's going to prepare you. And it's so beautiful to hear Paul say, when you do this, you don't experience, you know, prideful, self-righteous confidence. You experience peace with God and mercy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word that speaks so piercingly to our greatest needs. We thank you for the cross of Christ. We glory in the cross of Christ We thank you that through it we can have ourselves brought to nothing and experience the resurrection life that will be true of us in the new heavens and the new earth. Lord, I pray that you would give us your eyes to see where self-righteousness is buried in our hearts, where we look to win approval with and derive value from the world. And instead, Lord, we would be a people that only boast in the cross of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.